0: Certainly in the South, we'd say that's some good singing, right? (laughs) What a blessing. Appreciate that greatly. Listening to a song like Be Thou My Vision just causes my heart to reflect on the fact that it's an incredible blessing to be able to see the world through God's perspective. If you think about this, we uh, are reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 that That the gospel, the preaching of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's the power of God unto those who are being saved. And then we're reminded in chapter 2 that the natural man cannot discern the things of God. Meaning that uh, mankind in a lost state cannot see God's perspective on anything. Because the Holy Spirit of God does not indwell them. So if you're saved today, isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to commune with our Father and gain His perspective? What the Bible says to us and gain that perspective. This week I was sitting in one of my favorite breakfast places and I had my sweats on, had lifted weights and I had my Georgia hat on and this individual, I don't think he would have come to church today. But anyway, he said to me, said something about my Georgia hat and I commented about KC's hat, the fact that I would certainly pull for the Chiefs and he said, I want to ask you something. I said, yes, sir. I had no idea where this was headed. And he told me about a four-part documentary that's been playing on the History Channel. And these four or five things, you know, his basic premise was, this may very well be the way the world's going to end. And I said to him, well, Daniel 7 says that in the end, God's going to give the kingdom to the saints. So I said, I think we're going to be okay. And he (laughs) says to me, oh, no, not religion. And I said, well, no, not religion, a relationship. And I said, you know, I shout out a few more verses. And he said, you must be a preacher. That usually happens. I said, well, that, I didn't tell him I was. I just said, well, that's not important at this point. And then he went on to say, well, the Bible was written by men. You know where he's headed. They're imperfect, so therefore the Bible is not true. But it just reminded me of what a blessing it is to know the truth and to walk in it. And that has a lot to do with what Daniel is gleaning from the Lord in Daniel chapter 7. He's getting God's perspective on end-time events. When I was a little, little man, I guess I was 18 years old in 1988, I heard a sermon preached by Dr. Paige Patterson, and the title was, Is Saddam Hussein the Antichrist? His conclusion was, he was not. And guess what? He was Right? <coughs> right? But if you'll come back next week in verses 23 through 28, which I'm not going to preach today, I will reveal to you the identity of the Antichrist, and furthermore, we'll look on Google Maps, and I will show you exactly where he lives. No, that's not true. I won't do that. What I want to do today is help you, and for that matter, me, to be able to learn a method with dealing with apocalyptic literature. And so that's what we're going to do today. My proposal for you today is not the interpretive law of the Medes and the Persians. Because on eschatology, you can't have uh, your attitude that my interpretive grid on, on apocalyptic literature is absolutely perfect and I don't have any holes in it. Well, that's just not true. There's, there is and will be many varying opinions among God's people on the subject. I actually don't like—I don't enjoy discussing eschatology with people who feel like they've got their interpretive grid, and anything else outside of that grid makes you a liberal, right? Um, I don't enjoy talking to people about that. But as we approach this challenging and difficult passage, again, chapter seven, I want you to to appreciate the multi-level contours of biblical prophecy. That's what's important for us to do. You know, again, I grew up in a church where I remember we were searching for a pastor and I just overheard the adults. I was probably 12 or 13. I overheard them say, well, we like this pastor. We like this preacher. And he's straight up in every area with the exception of his eschatology. And he happened to be post-tribulational. And so they were kind of putting an X on him for believing that we would actually endure as the saints the tribulation. But I think that would be Stinking thinking, right? Uh, Little thinkers are big stinkers, right? And you have to think. And that's my encouragement for you today as well as we look through these many multi-levels of contours of biblical prophecy. I think all of us need to accept the fact that we won't all have the same exact view on end-time events. Eschatos means end-time, so eschatology is a study of end-time. So if I use that word... Uh, Just know I'm talking about end times or end time events. So no matter where you come up at the end of all this, I want everybody in our church to have a good appreciation for the multi-level contours of biblical prophecy. Okay? You also have to have a good appreciation of how the New Testament interprets the Old. And that is vitally important. You understand that we don't look at the Old Testament without lenses we have lenses today. It's the lens of the New Testament. So we're able to look back and unpack some of the things given to us. So as we approach the Old Testament, and in particular prophetic sections, we do so through the lens of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament, right? And we're going to have a lot of that given to us as we go through. So I want us to approach approach it with those things in mind. Last thing is, before I give you a couple of introductory statements about studying prophecy, is for all of us to be charitable to one another. If you find somebody in the church that doesn't agree with you with end-time events, don't fall out with them. Because you probably have some holes in your understanding. If you come away thinking that Daniel was talking about helicopters, you're in trouble, right? Right? Uh, If if you see Donald Trump somewhere in the Bible, there's a good chance something's wrong with you. (laughs) Even if you see the U.S. in the Scriptures, you just made that up because you don't necessarily see it at all. So just be careful. Uh, I'm trying to encourage you when you drink your coffee in the morning uh, not to hold a USA Today, a copy of Jack Baniff's newest book, and the Bible, because you're probably going to get messed up a little bit in what the Scripture actually says. Okay, ready? I don't feel good today at all. I really don't. I thought I was dying this morning. But I made it. All right? So this could be long, could be short. But here's what I want to remind you. I drank NyQuil last night. (laughs) And I'm preaching on apocalyptic literature. So I'm just going to tell you now, if I say something crazy, just just live with it. Right? All right. Here we go. We must look for the historical fulfillment of prophecies first. Get it? We have to look for historical fulfillment first. And so when you come to Daniel 7, we have to first ask how they were historically fulfilled. Our text today is Daniel 7, beginning in verse 15. We had that glorious study last week where we are clear on the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, right? But notice, Daniel, even though he hears that about the Son of Man, he's distraught. And there's a reason for that. Because he looks ahead in the vision and he knows what's going to happen to the saints. And it's not a good thing. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made, me, made known to me the interpretation of the things of these things... And he said, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Remember, that's how we started Daniel 7, verses 1 through 8. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. That's awesome. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. He's fixated on the fourth beast and he's fixated on that little horn. Right? Right? And he said, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with his feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions.' As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed, prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So historical fulfillment. We should all look for a prophetic pattern with certain things given in the book of Daniel. In chapter 7, it, does this particular thing have a fulfillment in its immediate context? And how is it protracted out? What does the trajectory of this prophecy look like? Is it mentioned again? Is there some kind of pattern that we see? And if there's a pattern, it will have a trajectory that goes into the future. In other words, there's historical fulfillment, but there's also going to be a future fulfillment. Does that make sense to everyone? And there are patterns in the word of God. Let me try to give you a couple of examples of this out of Daniel 7. Look at Daniel 7 verse 8. The Bible says, you shouldn't have to turn too far. Chapter 7 verse 8. I considered the horns and behold there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. All right? Take a look, scroll down with your eyes. Here we have a little horn that comes up from the Roman Empire. Now look at verse 20 and 21 of Daniel 7. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things. There's no doubt that this is the Roman Empire and this, this horn is the same one. Okay? In chapter 7, it's the same horn. In so Daniel seven, twenty through twenty-one, you have this little horn mentioned again, which is the same one of Daniel seven, eight. Then in twenty-four twenty-five, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and it shall put down three kings. So here again he's picking up the same pattern of a little horn. It's the little horn of the fourth kingdom which is Rome. Now Look with me in chapter 8, verse 9. Changing gears. Chapter 8, verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. Now, when you get here, verse 21. One more verse of chapter 8. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Do you notice how Daniel, he actually mentions the little horn first in the fourth kingdom. But now he's going back in chapter 8 and he's speaking clearly about the the kingdom of Greece. And he's also identifying it with a little horn. Are you all with me? There's a pattern that has been established with this little horn. The third kingdom is Greece and there's another little horn in the third kingdom. So they're not the same little horns. In fact, we know for a fact that this little horn that comes out of Greece is none other than Antiochus Epiphanes. We know this. There's not hardly any scholars that would ever disagree with that. So Daniel sees this little horn in the fourth and third kingdoms. So we have this little horn and a pattern that is established. Again, he actually tells you about the first little horn in the fourth kingdom. But the third one comes first. But it also had a little horn. So, when you get to the New Testament, there's going to be incredible similarities with the beast in Revelation 13 and the man of lawlessness found in 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, with this little horn. So there is a trajectory. There is a pattern that is pushed out into the New Testament. Now, thank the Lord that we have the New Testament, right? So there, is, there was historical fulfillment Those little horns actually pointed to people in history. And there's a pattern established in fulfillment. It has trajectory. Let me give you another example. In Daniel chapter 11, again, we're talking about the Greece, the kingdom of Greece. Daniel's going to highlight a lot of persecution that comes. And basically through Alexander the Great's successors. Remember that kingdom was divided into four kings. And what is prophesied by Daniel actually doesn't take place until 100 years after Alexander the Great's demise. Isn't that amazing? That the Lord God gave to Daniel a prophecy that would be fulfilled some 500 years later. Amen. Amazing. That's the Lord. He knows all things. He controls all things. So it's incredible how detailed it is. And when was that going to be fulfilled? In A.D. 166. Look at verse 31 of chapter 11. Check this out. The Bible says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. How many of you ever, have, you ever, have you ever heard of the abomination of desolation? Right, Most people that have scored uh, studied eschatology, we know that. We, we see that term and we think about it. But notice how there's an abomination of desolation that's going to take place in the uh, Greco-Roman world. And who is this dude? Antiochus Epiphanes. And he literally is going to butcher a swine in the Jewish temple on the altar. And desecrate the temple. This happened in 165 B.C. So here is the historical. Y'all with me? There's a pattern. Here is the historical fulfillment of the horn. There's a horn coming in the future, and even more so in the future. And then there is this abomination of desolation that's going to take place. We see it fulfilled in 165 B.C. But flip over, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 24. Isn't this a great devotion Amen. Jesus is uh, preaching on the Olivet Discourse. Not all of it, but the bulk of it has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. That's going to take place when? In 70 A.D. Notice what he says in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. In other words, Jesus is saying, remember... There's going to be the destruction of the temple. There's going to be another abomination of desolation that's going to take place under the reign of Nero. And the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. That's what Jesus was giving us. He was picking up on a pattern and a trajectory of of an abomination of desolation. And I want to remind you, there's going to be one of those in the future too. According to the book of Revelation. How about the word Babylon? Babylon. Did y'all know that that's a pattern? Where do we see it first? Daniel chapter 2, in the Colossus that Nebuchadnezzar sees, the first part of that was the, was the head of gold, which was who? Babylon. However, the Medo-Persians come in and destroy Babylon, and we might think, well, it's off the, it's off the scene forever. You'll never have Babylon mentioned again. But that's just not true, because Daniel is going to say that Jared, that. I mean, Jeremiah is going to say that Babylon is going to be destroyed. But it's a historical empire spiritually that's going to pop up in all the kingdoms after it. There's going to be parts of Babylon in Greece. Medo-Persians. There's going to be parts of that thinking. So when Peter writes from Rome, he says this. Years and years later, those from Babylon greet you. Folks, the town, the city did not even exist. Why would Peter have mentioned Babylon? Because the spiritual warfare of what the anti-God civilization that was present in Babylon is present in Peter's day in Rome. So part of Babylon is in Rome and they're interchangeably connected together. And guess what? When you get to the book of Revelation, guess what Rome becomes in John's prophecy? Babylon. Y'all getting this? Alright? There's a pattern that's established. And historical prophecies are not exhausted. They establish a pattern and a trajectory. Uh, the, The old commentator Bill says it right. In light of Daniel 7, the Roman Empire transcends many centuries and represents all world powers who oppress God's people until the culmination of history. So when you get to the book of Revelation, the beast that John sees is no doubt Rome. Yet he sees Rome... As a beneficiary of all the pagan empires that had come before. I know that's kind of deep. But you came to church this morning. I told you you had to think. So I hope you're thinking this morning. So the Roman Empire in Revelation 13. Is going to have lion-like and bear-like and leopard-like qualities. Even though it's called Rome. It still has all the qualities of all the other civilizations before it. And John's going to actually get real nasty in the book of Revelation. And he's going to call Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt. What a low blow. He's going to say Jerusalem. That holy city is more like Sodom and it's more like Egypt. Egypt held God's people in bondage and was opposed to the people of God. And Sodom still exists today, right? And I'm not even talking about present-day California. It's everywhere, right? It exists spiritually. So we look for the historical fulfillment and the pattern and the transcendence of a prophetic passage. Now, I know I could probably land the plane and you've learned a little bit. But if I'm seeing right, i got 15 more minutes, right? Now, we also need to be mindful of the Old Testament perspective that it's much more like a mountain range. Now, just think about it. We we grew up relatively close to the Rockies or mountains, Smokies or whatever. And from a long way off, it appears that all those mountains are kind of equal, and you just see those ranges across there, and you're like, wow, that's pretty. But when you get up there close, it's not the case. As a matter of fact, there's some giant valleys, and there's some gaps there. So from a distance, all the mountains look equal with each other. But when you get up to them, you realize there's great distances between the peaks and the valleys. Well, you need to, you need to read the Old Testament like that. Because the goal of the Old Testament is not to put in your mind the chronology that's going to be just one, you know, one thing after another. It's just not the case. So, uh, it will prove helpful if you'll think about the mountain ranges of the Old Testament and those peaks and the gaps that are in between them. Sometimes there are gaps and sometimes we like to make our own gaps, right? You need to be very careful doing that. Gaps can only be gaps when the New Testament says there's gaps. Again, we've got the New Testament to help us to translate and know what's going on. So be careful. Uh, Let the bounds of your prophetic literature and how you translate things be the New Testament. Let it help you understand those things. And I think if we'll hold on to those two things, it will help us. Look for the historical fulfillment first. And then absolutely be mindful of the Old Testament perspective and the mountain range understanding of the chronology of the Old Testament. Okay? Now I want to preach the text real fast. You ready? It won't take long. Daniel chapter 7. We read it. As for me, I was anxious. Daniel was. Now think about it. He got this Colossus in his mind from Daniel 2. Right? He interpreted it for Nebuchadnezzar. He knew it had distinct sections. It had four sections. But really there's five kingdoms, right? Y'all remember that little stone that was cut out? Which is the Son of God? He's cut out and that kingdom is going to destroy all kingdoms. And so Daniel has this in his mind. And... We have the Babylonian Empire that's going to be taken over by the Medo-Persians. Then we have the fall. Then it will fall to the Grecian Empire. And then it will fall to the Roman Empire. And we know that Rome is ferocious. Out of all the beasts and what they look like, like David was saying before we sang, uh, this, this is going to be a ferocious empire. Yet, that empire will have its dominion taken away from it as that little stone takes over the whole world. So think about this. Daniel, some 60 years after he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's vision, here he is again 60 years later, and God is giving him a vision of the four beasts in the sea and giving him an understanding of what things will be like in the future. And as we saw last week, I believe that chapter 7, 13, and 14 is the Lord Jesus' ascension into heaven. When he is installed as the king, when he receives from the Father his inheritance, which is me and you. Right? All the people of the world who have come to know Christ and will come to know Christ. I think that's what's going on in that particular passage of Scripture. Okay? Now, verse 15, he's going to be fixated on this fourth beast, this little horn that comes out of it. And even though he knows that the Son of God is going to be exalted in heaven, he's still trembling. Why? Because of what he hears. He will say the same thing at the end of chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 10. In other words, this stuff is tough, and it alarms me, it makes me tremble. So he is prophesying in the 6th century B.C. Do y'all realize that the Roman Empire will not even come to power for 500 years later? Do y'all understand how awesome the Word of God is? How that 500 years before Rome even becomes an empire, Daniel prophesies it. Why? It's given to him by the Lord. And how did it arise? Just the same way God said it would. So he sees this awful, terrifying beast. And what is he doing? He's devastating the saints. So he asked one of the angels, that's an attendant. I approached one of those who stood there and I asked him the truth concerning all of this. Talk about a succinct answer, right? I mean, Daniel probably wants more than this, right? But he just says, okay, four beasts are coming up out of the sea and they're all kings. But God's going to give the kingdom to the saints. End of story. Amen. Right? Sermon over. Now, Daniel's not happy with that because he comes back and asks again. But that's the succinct answer. Those four kingdoms, you got four kings. They're going to arise. But in the end, and this is glorious, God will give the kingdom to the saints. But Daniel will ask a second time. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast a beast which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron. And it stamped what was left with its feet. Hmm. This, this thing is destroying. This little horn is devastating the saints. Again, so he asks for another answer of what's going on. Keep in mind that in chapter 7, the kings and the kingdoms are interchangeable. But how sweet it is to hear what he says. Look at, look at the Word of God. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Folks, I don't know who you, I don't know what your thoughts are this morning, but that's not good news. Right? I don't know what your view is, interpretive of old test of old time of end time events. But when I read that, that's not good. Okay? He is going to prevail. He's going to make war with the saints and prevail over them. But aren't you thankful for this note of victory? Until the Ancient of Days came. Are we awaiting that with anticipation? Until the Ancient of Days comes. The one that has just been given to the Son of God, the very saints will receive the kingdom through the Son of Man. Remember when Jesus gives the parable of the stewards in Luke 19? A, so, a certain nobleman went away on a long journey to receive a kingdom. And what was Jesus talking about? He was talking about his ascension into glory. He then turns around and gives it to the people. Isn't that awesome? The saints will be given the kingdom. So, three times in this very chapter, he says the saints will receive the kingdom. When you get to Luke chapter 12, verse 32, he says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. That's good stuff. No matter what's going on, how much the enemy is prevailing over the saints, in the end, the saints get the kingdom. And Jesus will give it to us. Okay, Daniel wants to hear more again. The little horn was waging war against the saints, overpowering them. This evil empire, a person, the system... Actively waging war against the very people of God that that will get the kingdom. And I'm sure this part was terrifying to Daniel. It's terrifying to me. It should be to you. Now, this is not a refrain of triumph for the people of God when it says that he's prevailing over the saints. This is not a victory tune. It is actually opposite. Um, The fact of the matter is, he's treading... It's a peculiar paradox. The holy ones, the saints of the Most High God, the ones receiving a kingdom, are the ones being trampled upon. Y'all reading the same thing I'm reading? Right? That's what's going on here. From all appearances, they look like losers. The saints look like the ones that are going to lose. They won't even make it to the next round, period. They're being beaten down again and again and again. Incidentally, this is the exact same message of the book of Revelation the exact same message. That the little horn is prevailing against the saints. The beast, the man of lawlessness, is prevailing against the saints. But don't you love verse 22? Until, until the Ancient of Days comes. Now it doesn't say that the U.S. will form a caucus. Or until we form a political party. Or until we get our guy in the White House. It says, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. Folks, you can't put your stock in men. You can't put your stock in a Democratic-Republican party. You don't put your stock in a man in office. I mean, we all have our thoughts about who should and who should not be in there. I mean, we all watch that circus in the Senate. We've seen all this stuff. But I'm telling you, folks, God has this until the Ancient of Days comes. So we need to have the right perspective on it. The saints will be vindicated by God's judgment. at the time, And the time will come when the saints of the Most High will take possession of the kingdom. And our, isn't this wonderful? It lasts forever and forever and ever. That's good news for us. This kingdom will have no end. Now, folks, regardless of your time that you have in view here, I want to remind you that the entire church age, what do we mean by that? From the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem all the way to His second advent has been a time of persecution for the people of God. There was a reason why I preached Acts first at this church. It was to help you see that that the church was born out of the crucible of persecution. As Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And the more Christians that were killed, the more the church spread like wildfire. So, that's what our present age has also been marked by. Don't, Don't miss this you have to know that the war is real. You can't stick your head in the sand like an ostrich and just think that that everything's fine. No, there is a war that is being waged against the saints. When you get to Revelation 12, you're going to see that a dragon will attempt to devour the man-child, right? Which is the Son of God. And he wages war against the saints. What does the beast do? He wages war against the saints. And folks, that's history past for the church That's history present for the church. That is history future for the church. From the very inception of the church in the book of Acts, the people of God have been tortured and killed. Just think about it for a moment. You have Herod who kills James. You had Herod trying to kill Peter. You have Stephen martyred for the faith. Christian persecution was not just something that took place under the Roman emperors either. You know there's been more people martyred for the faith in the 20th century than in the history of the world all people martyred put together. Y'all do know that, right? But you you don't know it because we don't live over there. It's an anomaly for you to live in a country where you're not persecuted for the faith. Are y'all listening? Y'all do realize that. The U.S. is an anomaly. Everywhere else in this world. People are persecuted for their faith. They are killed for just simply saying, I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you don't believe that, just look at the voice of the martyrs. Just get on your computer and and, and ask the question, how many people have been martyred for the Christian faith in the last X amount of years? And it will blow your mind. We just don't know that. And so I'm reminding you that it's not a good thing to play church. And I know this was hard today because KC's playing in the Super Bowls. Real easy. To say, man, I'm going to go punch my clock today. Right? It's real easy for Americans to play church. We put on our Sunday best and bring a smile with it. But I want to remind you folks that according to the Bible, there's a real war going on. And the, the closer you get to Christ, the more you'll see the war. Right? The more you live for Jesus and the more you obey the Word of God, you will see the war that's going on. The war that the little horn wages against the saints... ...and overpowers them is real. It's a spiritual warfare. And we're going to have some sermons titled... ...Spiritual Warfare before we get out of Daniel. Because that's what you're going to see. It's fought in the spiritual realm... ...against principalities and powers... ...and people all over the world... ...pay the ultimate price for following Jesus... ...every single day. We need to wake up. We need to stop playing church. There are people, again... um, ...we live in Christian County, right? And we don't see this. Well, don't forget... That if you're banking your hope on the fact that there's going to be a renewed revival in the United States of America. Where we go back to our Christian heritage. I'm telling you now, you better not put your bank there. You better not put your stock in something like that happening. Why? Because I think it's going to get a lot worse before it ever gets better. Until. Until. The Ancient of Days comes. That's what the Bible tells us. This was. I don't know if there was ever a country that had a more pristine beginning than Israel other than the U.S. But we've gone a long way away from that, have we not? And the trajectory is not good. But I'm not fretting it because the Lord is in control. Remember how we read it in Daniel 2. The Lord causes nations to rise and He causes them to fall. I'm trying to get you to put your faith in the Lord. Uh, Not in a system, not in a country, but in the Lord. Well, 74% of the Christian population in Great Britain say today that they feel more persecution in legislation than they ever have in the history of the, of the UK. I want to tell you, we're just a couple of steps away from being the UK. We are, folks. I'm telling you, we are. We're just a couple. Of, how long is it going to take? Maybe just four more years. We don't know that. But I'm telling you, it's coming in the future. Uh, what would it take for things to get worse? Not much. Not much. When the war against the saints takes on a dimension that we've never known before, where are you going to be? Will you come to First Baptist Ozark when it costs you something to come in these doors? Something to think about, right? Where are you going to be when this, this, our civilization, our country, even Ozark, Missouri, even state of Missouri, you could have restrictions on gathering together to worship the Lord. What are you going to do? You think that's far-fetched, but I'm telling you it's not. It already happens in the U.K., I'm telling you, it's not far-fetched. Isaac Watts said it well. Saints in all this glorious war will conquer though they die. They will view the triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. Isn't that awesome? The Ancient of Days is going to vindicate His people. Jesus would ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. One of my favorite texts... In the Bible is one that Natalie and I memorized when we were kids. Well, we were not 20 years old when we got married. We were kids, right? Listen, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lust so that we would live godly lives in this present age. Listen, waiting for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own, zealous of good works. Are you looking for that blessed hope? The only hope for America is the coming of the Son of Man. Right? The Ancient of Days is coming again. And here's my prayer. My prayer is that you're part of the kingdom. Jesus said, there's only one way to be a part of the kingdom. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through me. Have you trusted Christ? Yeah, it's going to get tough. It's going to get rough. There's going to be days coming. Just look at the projection, the trajectory out. The saints are going to continue to be persecuted. Until. Until the Ancient of Days. Aren't you thankful for that? To God be the glory. Father, would you help us during our time of invitation? Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I've tried to to be as faithful as I possibly can with looking at text of Scripture and letting the Bible interpret the Bible, coming away from a good eschatology, Lord, coming away from study by saying, hey, we can be pretty confident that this and that's going to take place. But Lord, hallelujah for the fact that you're going to come in the future and you're going to give the kingdom to the saints and we're going to reign forever and forever and ever. Lord, we are so thankful. We're so blessed. God, help us in the United States of America to think about the lack of persecution that we often feel. Lord, we're persecuted for some things, but nothing like those around the world. God, help us have the right frame of reference in that regard. Our our thoughts shouldn't be, since we're distanced from it, that we should keep our mouths closed. God, help us. Help us be willing to put our faith on the line. To be willing to open our mouths. Tell others about Jesus. To tell other people that in the end, God will give the saints the kingdom. God, what a glorious truth that is. Lord, some of us are going through difficult days even as I speak. Uh, Physically, our bodies fall apart. and Lord, we have all kinds of problems. Uh, Husbands and wives that don't get along. Lord, we know we, there's all kinds of things going on. Don't, Father, we look for the day when there is no more sin, no more separation, uh, not even the presence, not, no way of temptation for sin because the presence of sin will not even be there. God, we look forward to that day when we see you face to face. Lord, help us. Help us to live out our Christian lives now on earth as anticipating with expectancy the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be an encouragement for us to obey your word like never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.